So we're going to be going to the book of Hosea, Matthew 9 and the book of Hosea. Let's pray. Lord, as always, your spirit teach and we listen, just guide and direct us in all ways. Lord, we once again, we want to give you those couples at the marriage retreat this weekend. Keep them safe as they travel back and bless their marriage. And Lord, I just know there's a lot of other people this week that they're going to be traveling and doing things. Just take care of them as we're getting into that busy, warm season of life, traveling mercies to and from. But for right here, right now, we want to learn of you and to grow in you. Pray your spirit teach and we listen in your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, Lord willing, time willing. We're going to do verses 9 through 17 here this morning, continuing our study through the book of Matthew. Now, if you weren't with us the last couple of weeks, the main focus the last couple of weeks has been Jesus' power over disease and nature, demons, spiritual realm, etc. And it comes back to verse 17 of Matthew 8. It says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And we talked about the two words here, the proof and the power. Jesus had power over nature, he had power over disease, he had power over sickness, power over death, power over the demonic realm, spiritual realm. That power there shows that that's the God we serve. And number two, it's the proof, the proof that he was the Messiah. So with that understanding, seeing his power and seeing the proof of being him the Messiah, what's the only natural reaction to something so supernatural? Verse 9 of chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. The only natural reaction to something so supernatural of what Christ can do is to follow him. So let's talk about Matthew now, one of the twelve, and how he learned to become a follower of Christ. Verse 10, now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with them and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we can learn a lot about Matthew here. Matthew was a tax collector. What does that mean and look like? Well, you have to jump back a couple thousand years ago to really understand what that job was. This job meant that you collected taxes for Rome. So the way you got paid was you collected what you were supposed to collect, but anything that you could collect above and beyond that was your personal to keep. So that's why tax collectors were so looked down upon, because they would always collect more than what they were were supposed to. Now the question comes up of how did they have the power to do this? Well, a good tax collector a couple thousand years ago would always take a couple Roman soldiers with him. So when he knocked on your door and he collected your taxes, he would always want a little bit more. Now, you can't argue with the Roman soldiers. And the way the tax collector would do this is he would then give a bit of that extra to the Roman soldiers as well. So tax collectors were looked down upon. They were hated. They were despised. In fact, if you were Jewish and you became a tax collector, according to the law, and please note this is not the law of the Bible. This was the law of the rabbis at the time. You were considered an outcast from society. You were considered excommunicated from the synagogue, and you were a disgrace to your family. Because how dare you go collect money from Rome, the nation that is oppressing us? How dare you do that? So by Jesus going to Matthew and saying to him in verse 9, follow me, what does that show? It shows that Jesus, number one, what? Loves the outcasts. Number two, loves those that have no place to go. And number three, love those that feel that they are disgraced. That's the picture of Christ. He purposely calls this tax collector that would be hated. Hated. Now, in just a couple weeks, we're going to get into a teaching on the 12 disciples. You have to understand the mix of these 12 disciples. This is like taking gasoline and a match and putting them right together. 
This is not good in any way whatsoever. So now you have the tax collector coming and joining this group of 12. Guess who else was in the group of 12? Simon the Zealot. You know why he's called Simon the Zealot? Because he was zealous for the freedom of Israel. And so therefore they were called zealots because they were always wanting to go against Rome. So now you have a tax collector serving with the zealots. And you also have a tax collector serving with the first fishermen who were taxed. It's this this crazy mix of people. But the Lord brings together. When I look across the church, there's a crazy mix of people. And the Lord brings you guys together. Some of you have differences of ideas and certain things. But the Lord unifies us together as one in the spirit. And so what you see right here is saying, follow me. Hey, follow him. And it's not just follow him. Because in Luke 5, we see the other account of this story. And in Luke 5, we also know that Matthew's name is Levi. But there's a little added passage there. It says that he left all and followed him. Left all. That's huge. Do you realize for most of these disciples, there was no plan B? There was not. Remember when the Lord called Peter and Andrew and John and James, the Bible said that they left their nets and they left their father. By leaving their nets, it shows that they're leaving their old lifestyle behind. They're no longer fishermen of fish, but now they're going to become fishers of men. So they were willing to let that go. They left their father behind, showing about leaving behind old relationships. Matthew, leaving all and following him, there was no backup plan. It was fully committed to following Christ and always say and do. To be quite honest, as a church, and I don't mean harvest, but as a church in the world today, I think we've lost that idea of completely abandoning everything and just saying, Lord, I will follow you. We will follow the Lord until it gets a little difficult or a little awkward, and then we usually stop. But this complete abandonment of saying, Lord, I will let go of everything, nets, relationships, the business, and say, Lord, I'm yours. You never know where he's going to take you. But to be quite honest, isn't that part of the fun and the excitement of what we get to do? You never know what it is. I was at a pastor's conference years ago, and the one pastor was trying to describe what it's like to be in ministry. And he said, every day is an adventure. You have no idea what the Lord's going to do. You have no idea where God's going to call you. And that ministry does not mean ministry like I'm the pastor, I'm in the ministry. All of you are in the ministry according to the Bible. Because the word ministry just means to serve. So as you go into work every day, you're going into the ministry. You have no idea what's going to pop up there. You have no idea what conversations are going to start or where God's going to take it. Even if you're at home or wherever, you have no idea what the Lord's going to bring every day. And the question is, are we willing to leave all, follow him, and say, Lord, it's all yours. There is no plan B. I'm fully devoted to Christ and all that I do and all that I say. What an amazing idea that is to live with that type of abandon. Boy, it's exciting. So what do we do after we follow him? Verse 10, we have a party. That's what we do. According to the book of Luke, his account, Matthew's the one that hosted this party. So therefore, what happens is Matthew follows Jesus and he invites all of his ugly, awful, horrible sinners over. And they all get the chance to eat with Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. Once we come to know Christ personally, the rest of our life, we are just glorifying God and pointing people towards Jesus. That's what we do. You're basically hosting a party and you're just inviting people to come meet Christ. Now, not everybody's going to respond. Not everybody's going to want to come. But you're still just representing the Lord and saying, I want to point people towards you. That's what we do. So Matthew has this party. He points people towards the Lord. They're sitting down. They're eating. And guess what happens? Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think the appropriate answer to that in verse 11 is, well, why don't we eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Somehow we've reached this point in Christianity where we get saved and then we just want to climb up the hill, build a fort, and just wait till Jesus returns. And we don't want anything bad to ever happen to us. And we don't want anything to ever go wrong. We just want to hide out until Jesus returns. I call it the fort mentality Christian. When really Jesus said, you're supposed to get out there and represent me to the dying world. We're supposed to go. Go and represent the Lord. As you've heard us say many times here, it's not about us. It's not about these four walls. It's about representing Christ. So the better answer is, well, why aren't we going out there and eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Because that's who Christ came for. Look at his response, verse 12. When Jesus heard that, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 13, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Very simply put, what Jesus is trying to say in verse 12 is, You think you're healthy spiritually. Well, then you don't really need me. Pharisees, Sadducees, you think you got it all figured out. You're fine. You're not sick. Well, then I'm going to go to the people that are sick. The people that realize that they're sinners and they need that sin taken care of. Because verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you already think you're righteous and you have it all figured out, then you really don't need me as the Messiah. Now, he's not saying that literally, but that's what he's this idea of. You think you're righteous, you don't need me, then I'm going to go to those people that do need me, those sinners. And I think sometimes, once again, we represent Christ not in the full light. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear, hear this the wrong way. I heard a pastor teach this a while ago, Greg Lord, and I thought it was a wonderful point. He said, so often when we present the gospel, we present the gospel like this. Your life is empty. Your life is pointless. You have no reason to live. Let me come give you Jesus who gives you a reason to live. Now, there's some truth to that. That's the reason we live is Christ. But Pastor Greg said this. He goes, how many people do we run into that don't feel their life is pointless? They don't feel their life is meaningless. They feel their life is actually kind of fulfilling. They have a good job, good family, good marriage, good whatever. They don't feel that emptiness, really. That's when Pastor Greg says, that's why you have to make sure you always present the idea of we're all sinners in need of repentance. That's why Christ came to die on the cross, is to take care of sin. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 13. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, that's not a very popular message, is it? See, you can get by a little bit with the message of, you know what, your life is meaningless and pointless and empty. Let me tell you about Jesus who will help you. People will accept that a little bit. But as soon as you start calling people sinners, that's really not a great way to make friends. But that's the truth of it. We're all sinners in need of salvation and grace. And that's why Jesus came. So when we try to go represent that, guess what? Verse 11, you're going to have people come and question you. Why? Why do you do this? Why do you say these type of things? I was just talking to someone after the first service, and they brought up the point out how at work, um, one guy was complaining because he supposedly said that this guy was going to go to hell. And he said, I didn't say you were going to go to hell. I asked you, if you would die, would you go to heaven or hell? And the guy responded, I'd probably go to hell. He says, you said you were going to hell. I didn't say you were going to hell. Your own words condemned you. See, we can represent the bad guy. We're not the bad guy. We're the guy pointing you to the lifeboats. The boat's sinking. We want to get you on the lifeboat. We want to point you towards Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus said. I came to call the sinners, not the righteous. Because the righteous supposedly don't need me. But the sinners definitely do. But one thing that Jesus says in verse 13, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If Jesus himself says, Go and learn what this means, I think we should probably go learn what that means. Can you go with me to Hosea? Hosea chapter 6, please. So let's learn what that verse means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, as you're going to Hosea, a little bit of background here in the book of Hosea. 
If you've been coming out on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about this as we're going through Chronicles. What happens is the kingdom split. The ten northern tribes come to be known as Israel, and the southern two tribes come to be known as Judah. Hosea is ministering as a prophet to the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes. And what's going on in the northern tribes is they've set up their own really religious system. And they're committing what we call spiritual adultery with God. They're basically cheating on God with idols and false worship. So God calls Hosea to be a prophet to this. But the way God calls Hosea is this. He tells Hosea, go and marry a harlot. And your marriage is going to be a picture of my relationship with Israel. So Hosea goes and marries this harlot. And throughout the book of Hosea, her name is Gomer. She's leaving him. She goes back to harlotry. He has to go rescue her. And so God basically saying, that's a picture of me with Israel. As you guys are cheating on me with idols, you're leaving me. And I need to come back and rescue you. Now, the problem is these northern tribes thought they were all okay. Because they got this great system of worship going. These sacrifices, this, all the system of priests and everything. And that's when we get to this. Look at Hosea 6, verse 6. Here's the verse that Jesus quoted. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What Jesus is saying is, what I want is your love, not your sacrifice. What I want is for you to know me and not just give me dead animals. He goes, I want you. Not just your religion, I want you. Now this goes on with what we have been saying in Matthew. We just got done doing Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What did Christ say? Because I don't want your tithes, your offerings. He goes, I don't want your, your fake fasting. I don't want your righteous works. He goes, I want your heart. Because once I get your heart, all those other things will come. But unless you just do those things on the outside, he goes, I don't have your heart. Christ always just wants our heart. Verse 6, God is saying, I want your love, not your sacrifice. I want you to know me, not just offer up animals. That's how they were doing their relationship back then. Look how much I love God. I'm killing animals. No, I want your heart. Now, the problem is that idea of knowledge. I want you to know me. Well, will they know them, right? Doesn't, don't they know him? Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the difference between the words know, K-N-O-W, in the New Testament. We talked about how there's two different words there. One means to know of God. You know that he's there. You know that he exists. The other one is to know him deeply, to know him personally. Almost everybody will admit that they know God. They believe in a God of some sort. But they don't know him. They don't know him in the sense of a relationship. Well, this is the same thing that was happening thousands of years ago in the book of Hosea. Stay in Hosea and just go to chapter 4, please. Chapter 4. Because in chapter 4, you see the same theme coming up. Look at Hosea 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. He goes, you're going to be destroyed because you don't know me. Now, once again, just as there's two words for know in the New Testament, there's many different words for know in the Old Testament. This word for knowledge, the knowledge that you have, means a deep, personal, intimate knowledge. There's another word for knowledge which just means knowing facts. That's the word used for Solomon. If you remember the story of Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, in Kings and Chronicles, when it talks about his knowledge, it's a completely different word. He knew a lot of stuff. This word for knowledge, Hosea is saying, guys, God wants you to know him deeply, personally. It's not about sacrificing animals. It's not about spilling the blood on the altar. It's nothing with that. It's about you knowing the Lord deeply and personally. Look at verse 1 of the same chapter of Hosea 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. 
Well, that's not true. I know God. Hosea says, no, you don't. You know of him. You know the religious system. You know the sacrifices, but you don't know him. Haven't you ever run into that? I run into that a lot. When you're trying to share the Lord with somebody, I find it easier to share Christ with an atheist than someone who has been in church their entire life. Because sometimes those people that have been in church their entire life but do not have a real relationship with the Lord, they have knowledge. They know the truth. The problem is the heart's not there. And I tell you, that is a difficult person to really share the Lord with. Because just like in Hosea 4, they have knowledge, but there's not that closeness, that oneness. What else do they not have? Go back to verse 6. Because you have forgotten the law of your God. They know the truth, they know the words, and they could probably quote scriptures, and they may know the Bible better than some of us here. But there's really not a relationship with the Lord. And the whole point that Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees is, listen, guys, go back and study out Hosea. What was happening in Hosea? There was a religious system set up. There were sacrifices set up. But you know what? People didn't know me personally. He goes, and the same thing is happening today. You Pharisees, you have knowledge. You have a religious system set up, but you don't know me personally. Now jump back to Matthew 9 here, please. A couple questions we have to ask ourselves as we go through this is, number one, are we willing to follow him? Now, and, and I'm not just asking, I'm really asking, are we really willing to follow him? I've shared this story with you before. I remember when I was younger, and we had missionaries come out to the church I was attending at the time. And they got done presenting what it meant to be a missionary. And they all told us to stop and pray and see if the Lord has called us to be missionaries. And I said, Lord, I won't do it. <laughs> Basically, you just gave me this whole missions presentation, how difficult it is to be a missionary. And now you want me to pray to do it. No, I'm not going to do it, Lord. Is that really following? No. And then not only following, the next phrase, leave all. Are we willing to leave all? That's hard to do, guys. That's really hard to say, I will let go of everything for you, Lord. Because it almost is that fear of what's he going to call me to do? What's he going to ask me to do? Listen, when you walk in God's will, there's no safer place for you to be than God's will for your life. And you walk in the love of the Lord, He'll always take care of you. He'll always meet your need. I, I, I know as a father, I would never lead my children down a path that's going to harm them. I never would. As a father, I would never take them down a path that's going to bring them into fear. Never would. Why would God do that to us? And He loves us more than we love our kids. So when He says, follow me and leave all, okay, Lord, I will. I will trust you. And as I do that, I have to be prepared for the backlash. And I have to be prepared for that that system of, you know what, just go through the motions. There's enough people in this world today just going through the motions with the relationship with Christ. We don't need that. We need people that are sold out for Jesus. And when that happens, that's when you can really start to see things change. Matthew followed, left all, served him. And what an amazing picture that is. So what happens next? Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? See, fasting was very important back during this time. Still is important today, obviously. Why did the Pharisees fast? The Pharisees fasted for attention. They got the pat on the back. Hey, look at everybody. The Pharisees are fasting. They got that religious attention. Why did the disciples of John fast? John's disciples fasted as a part of humble preparation for the Messiah. Remember, John's ministry, John the Baptist, his whole ministry was to point people towards Jesus. So his followers were fasting to get prepared for the Messiah coming. 
So why aren't the disciples of Jesus fasting? Verse 15, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus is basically saying, listen, this is the the wedding party right now. The groom is here. This is not the time of sorrow and sadness. This is the time of rejoicing. The Messiah is here. So my disciples aren't fasting because they need to realize this is the time to enjoy the presence of the Messiah. Verse 15, the bridegroom is going to leave and then they will start fasting. The bridegroom has left. He died, rose again, ascended to heaven. We fast now. And you remember why we fast. We fast to gain wisdom on things. Lord, I'm going to spend this time with you, searching you. We, we fast in the time of preparation. We fast to spend that time with the Lord. We've talked about fasting a lot the last few weeks. It's basically a time to let go of physical food and focus on the spiritual man. So I basically neglect the physical man to focus on the spiritual man. And that's the point and purpose of fasting. And Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here. The party is here. The celebration is here. This is not the time of fasting. This is the time to represent what's going on. Why did they not see it? Verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, what, what is Jesus trying to say? He's trying to say, I'm bringing something new, the new covenant. You guys are based in the old You can't handle the newness that I'm bringing. You can't handle this idea of what it means to be the Messiah. This idea of desiring mercy and not sacrifice. Because their whole religious system was built on this idea of sacrificing animals. It was built on this religion where Jesus says, I want you to really have a relationship with the Lord. To walk in His mercy. They couldn't handle that. The new. So He gives two examples. The one is taking a rip, a tear, putting a patch on it. But the problem is the patch pulls away. And the tear is made worse. Now, I know that's true. We used to have this old couch that had a tear in it. And so what we did is we patched it. You should not patch anything with children. It just doesn't work. What you basically do is you just say, you know what, let's wait till the kids move out, then we'll get a new couch. And it just kept getting worse. We'd patch it, it would get worse. And it's exactly what it says here in verse 16. is As that patch tears, it makes the rip bigger. You can't patch the old. It has to be the new. Same thing with verse 17, the new wine and old wineskins. The way they did it back then is that you would take the new wine and you would put it in a new wineskin because that way when that wine would start to ferment, that wineskin could expand with that. The new wineskin still had the flexibility to expand. The old wineskins had already been expanded as much as they could. They'd been used. So if you put new wine in them, as that new wine would start to ferment and expand, that old wineskin would burst. What Jesus is trying to say is, listen... You guys aren't willing to accept new. You're not willing to have that come into your life. And what happens is as the new comes in, it rips, it tears, it bursts. And you're not willing to accept that new. He goes, I need the new wineskin. The wineskin that's willing to adapt. The willing to stop and say, this is new. And I'm willing to expand with this. Now there's a lot of application for that. First one, corporately speaking, I hate to say it. But you see that same concept in churches a lot. They're not willing to accept new. Now, please, when I say new, don't think I mean new doctrine, new theology. No, I'm not saying anything like that. What I'm saying is they're so focused on the way they do things that if the Lord wants to do something and maybe a new direction, a fresh way, they're not willing to accept it. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way it will always be. I've also seen that in individuals. This is the way I've always done it. This is the way I've always been. But what happens if the Lord wants to take a new direction in your life? Nope. This is the way I've always done it. This is the way it will always be. 
Boy, that's a dangerous place to be. The Lord wants to do something new sometimes in your life. And that's part of the craziness of following Christ. There are some things that's happened in my life where it's like, Lord, why did you take us down this path? And I look back on it now, and this is for me personally, my personal opinion. I think it was almost the Lord saying, James, are you still willing to be expandable? Are you still willing to be flexible? Are you still willing to accept that crazy idea and walk in faith and do it? That's the new wine and the new wineskins. Okay, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll go. Look at the theme that's coming up here. The theme. Verse 9, follow me. Okay, what does it mean to follow him? It means to stop and say, Lord, you're going to lead me and guide me in whatever path you call me. And I know, and I'm speaking for me personally, whatever path you call me, it's going to be a wonderful path for my wife. It's going to be a wonderful path for my kids. Because that's the path you're leading and guiding us. So am I willing to follow? And then like it says in Luke 5, leave all. Leave all. See, I think a lot of us are saying, Lord, I will follow you. Okay, leave all. No thanks. No thanks. Remember what we just talked about a couple weeks ago? I think it was actually just last week. Jump back to verse 18 of Matthew 8. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Verse 19, then a certain uh, scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, we just covered that last week, so I don't want to repeat everything. But how often do we say, Lord, I'll follow you, but... It's not convenient right now. The path you've asked is too difficult. That, 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 that means too much faith. That takes me out of my comfort zone. It's really not following. Are we willing to leave all? Are we willing to have the Lord strip us of everything and say that all I have is Jesus and that's all I need? That's part of that idea of really following and understanding. That's why we try to give you the background on these fishermen. We try to give you the background on these tax collectors. This wasn't just changing a job for Matthew. This was leaving a lifestyle. He wasn't going to be able to jump back into this. Those fishermen leaving their nets, leaving their father. They tried going back to fishing. Peter tried that at the end of the book of John. It didn't work out real well. That's what that sacrifice of following the Lord is. Now, continue our points here. Follow, leave all, verse 11. Are we willing for this, uh, the backlash? Does any of you guys remember when you first got saved? You were just so excited in the Lord. Just the new wine, just so excited. And you just figured that all your close friends and family members would be just as excited as you were. Because this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. So you go to your friends, your family members, and you tell them about what Jesus did in your life. And their response was nothing like you thought it would be. See, that is that verse 11. That is that people that always have an opinion, always have a thought. Well, why don't you do this? Why are you doing this? Man, oh man, one of the most difficult aspects of Christianity is sometimes dealing with other Christians. Because everybody has an opinion. And that's why we have to keep this focus of Jesus. Back to verse 13. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God says, I just want your heart. Because the whole point is, I'm here to represent Christ to sinners. And that's what I want to do. Verse 16 and 17, there's a newness in our life. Sometimes the old can't handle that. That is part of that process of saying, Lord, I just want to follow you. And what does that look like? And for each one of us, there's a uniqueness to that. And I don't know what that looks like for you personally. That may mean some changes at work. 
That may mean some changes in some personal relationships you have. That may mean some changes in your private life. That may mean some changes of just you at home with the spouse and the kids. But what does it really mean to leave all and follow him? And that's what the Lord is asking us to do. And we see this example of Matthew saying, are we willing to do that? And when we fully do that and fully grasp it and understand it, that's when we can see the big picture. We can see that full understanding of what Matthew did and leaving all and saying, Lord, I just want to represent you to this dying world. And it takes faith to do that. So what I want to do here as we kind of get ready to close, I want us just to stop and and ask ourselves that. Is that something that, that we're willing to do? You know, this is not a forced, this is not a have to, this is not a whatever. It's really just stopping and saying, Lord, is that what I want to do? Can you go with me real quick to Luke 9? This is what I want to finish up with. Luke 9 adds one more example that I think is important to go to. Luke 9. 57, please. Two of these examples we covered in Matthew, but there's another example here in Luke that kind of just puts the icing on the cake. Verse 57, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. We've talked about this one. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 59, Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now here's the third example. Matthew doesn't mention this one, verse 61. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell where at my house. Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, you've heard me use this example many times. I remember growing up on a farm when Dad let me finally go out and start working ground, chopping wheat stubble. Uh, We had sorghum for a while, go out there and chop that. Now, my dad, and he's not here this morning, so that's why I'm talking about him. My dad... Is, is a perfectionist, is a perfectionist. And so he, and, and it's still in there. I, I always say the two things that changed my dad more than anything were Jesus and grandkids. I tell you, that is a combination, a powerful combo of Jesus and grandkids, of what that can do to a man. But he was even over at my house this week, and he was looking at one of the fields across the road. And as he was looking across one of the fields, he was just noticing how straight those lines are. Because as that farmer mentality, straight rows, straight rows. So straight rows are very, very important to him. So as I'm getting out there as, as, as a young boy, working ground, chopping the weed stubble sorghum, he would say, I want the rows to be straight. Rows to be straight. I have no idea how to do that. So he said, what you do is you pick an object in the distance, and you keep your eyes on that object, be it a telephone pole or a tree. So you keep your eyes on that, and as you get to the end of the field, that's when you turn around, you pick another object in the distance, and you keep your eyes on that, right? Okay, that works. Now, that starts to fail when you do what? When you turn around and look behind. Because even without subconsciously doing it, you're, you're driving the tractor. And I remember we had an Alice Chalmers 7030. I'm driving that thing. Turn around. Your hand just automatically turns it just a little bit. Just a little bit. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's the Matthew. Leave all, follow him. What happens is, follow him, but yet keep looking back a little bit. What am I missing out on? Oh, do you remember that? Oh, boy, that was so much fun. 
Did I really make the right decision? I mean, is this the sacrifice that God's asked me to do? Leave all, follow him. Don't look back. When you look back, that's when you're lying. It's going to start becoming all wobbly. I said last passage. I'm just lying to you. Can you go with me to Hebrews, please? Hebrews. It's like you go to one verse, the Lord says, here's another good verse. So let's go to Hebrews 12. I think this is the last passage now. Hebrews 12. Talking about that idea of just keeping your focus on that one thing. I mean, seriously, we complicate Christianity so much. Christianity is keeping my eyes on Christ and just following Him. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. we got some people from church that are up uh, this morning in Toledo running that marathon. And I know these guys. I know what they're running. And I know their shoes are going to be lightweight. They're going to pick the right clothes, etc. They're not going to run in army boots. not going to run in cowboy boots. They're going to run in lightweight running clothes. Verse 1 is basically telling us the race that we're in here with Christ. Let us get rid of all this weight that so easily ensnares us. Why do we carry so much baggage as believers? Baggage of choices that we should have made that we didn't. Choices of that we did make we wish we wouldn't have. Regret. Guilt, shame. Well, remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 1? There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Let us get rid of that. See, we can't really be effective for the Lord because we carry so much baggage with us. Okay, but back to the point of keeping the focus. Look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's all you got to do, people, is look unto Jesus. That is the telephone pole in the distance to keep my road straight. I just look at Jesus. And when I get up in the morning, Christ, what do you want me to do today? I keep my eyes on you. How can I be a witness at work? How can I be a witness at home? What can I do? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's not complicate something. Let's keep it simple. Let's look unto Jesus. Let's follow him. Let's leave everything behind. All the hurt, the pain, the regret, the guilt, the shame. Leave it all behind. And say, Lord, today I am following you and leaving it all. And it's going to be a light and a witness for you. That's what the Lord has asked us to do. And when we do that, all of a sudden we see the big picture. It's about eternity. It's about heaven. It's about hell. And representing Christ to a dying world. So what I want to do is this. And worship team, if you want to come forward here for the final song. What I want to do is this. If you've got something you want to pray about, maybe there's a weight that has easily ensnared you. Maybe there's something that's keeping you from keeping your eyes solely on Christ. Maybe you want to follow Him, but the idea of leaving all behind, I tell you, if you want to pray about it, I'll be standing there in the back. So if I'm praying with somebody, Marv will close you out with a word of prayer. And you know, I always miss shaking your guys' hands to get a chance to say hello to you. But um, if somebody wants to pray, I'll definitely be back there to pray. And I tell you, people, you will never regret leaving it all behind and just saying, Lord, it's yours. I tell you, that is where the real party's at. Just like Matthew, had the feast just to introduce everybody to Jesus. We'll give it over to the worship team and let you go here with the word of prayer then.